I guess that's a cuss. What? What? Taking cuss? the Lord's name in vain, like I just did. Oh, see, a, I think that's considered a cuss. I just, I just hit record. Are we going to start the podcast that way? Are we going to what? Are we going to start the podcast that way? Oh, you 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 recorded yes. me taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, I don't. Is it in vain? I guess it's in vain. It, it certainly wasn't to a purpose. There you go. Yeah, there you go. So we're back. Um, special day in headquarters. It today. is a special day because we have a guest. We almost uh, never have a guest anymore in person, live in person. We almost never have that. Right. And today we do. Gosh darn it. Yeah. Yeah. We do. Okay. We that, do. This has been a great show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. Okay. So we're going. It's happening. All right. So do something. Say something. We have today in studio our awesome student at UGA and my co-author on a, on a, on a recent article. Neat. Now, is this article publicly available on SSRN yet? Well, it, funny story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, it is. It's one oh, of the, it is? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just that it still says in review. Have You You know when you first post something right. there and it says in review and you're like, what What uh, are they, re- what's happening? And how long has it been that way? Like over a week or so. Oh, so here's what you do. Yeah, I got to email somebody or, or yeah, tweet yeah. at somebody So, so there's a contact thing on there where you, you can make a, con- like you can make a request yeah. Yeah. and you just say, it's been a week. Can you please like figure out why this hasn't been approved yet right. and they write back the first thing they write back they say we, we have so many submissions oh my gosh right right oh uh, and then like two hours later it's approved so I, it's a way to precipitate it's a squeaky wheel issue i feel like it got approved last last time on the segregation of markets piece like with a tweet like i was just wondering like hey you know what's going on and, mm. and then it got approved so I, I don't know i don't know what's happening with it or you can just you know wait forever I mean, it's up to you. Well, that is my, <laughs> that, that, maybe that is a little bit of my personality. Like I just kind of wait and, you know, yeah. I, fi- I figure they're getting to it. I don't assume they're not. Well, if it's know. been, but if it's been over a week, it really, because as you're. Well, maybe there's a lot to review. As you're pointing out with your jest, uh, it, they are playing a largely ministerial function. And so you wouldn't imagine, even if yeah, they I don't received know. many submissions, that it would take them oodles and boodles of time. I don't know. You know, the, I don't know if they're classifying it for or reviewing the classifications. And I don't know what's happening. I, I don't know. I don't know. But the upshot is that you can still get to it. You just have that little background, which indicates, hey, this paper, right. it could be sketchy. So like you can put it in the show notes, and I don't think there's any could about it. I think it's sketchy as hell. Oh, just okay. kidding. Okay. Um, so you, <laughs> you, you, you can put in the show notes that link, and it will take them to that. Um, do you mind if we actually introduce the guest? I, and, I and don't mind. Him by name. I asked you to talk, and you decided to talk about things other than his name, and that's up to you. <laughs> this is great. But, no, because you asked, "Is the paper available?" Yeah. And then we got onto this tangent about how to make it available. You can, it is t- you can make like, any excuse you like well, about why you no, haven't gotten oh back around to Justin's name, but you, oh you know, God. here we go. So go for it. It's your. He's your co-author. Yeah, it's your is, show. I think we're just. Demo- we are so far away from being serial level in terms of this podcast. <laughs> and, that goes without saying. And so we have with us today Justin Van Orstall. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank uh, you for joining us. It's a little surreal being here, going from student to to author and now on the show. It's great. I Welcome. Surreal. Everything yes. feels surreal, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't get any better. I'm, I'm glad I get to see <laughs> the, the banter beforehand and, and you guys haven't changed anything, so so that's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, you no, know, this is how we roll. Yeah. 
So it's uh, when you hear it out there in in real life, this is this is how it is. So Van Orstall, I would have definitely butchered that if I had tried that without some assistance. Now, how do you say it? I was going to ask you before we started recording, but then you know we just started recording, so it's, it's more fun that way. It's because I know how to say it, but then am I putting the emphasis in a funny place? No, or it's fun. It's, how do you Van, say it? It's Van Orstall, um, but people butcher it all the time. Say Van Orsdale. I've heard Van Orsendorf, all kinds of random oh, wow. things. Yeah, so. that's just all kinds of extra it's, letters. It's all, all bad. Van Orsdale <laughs> sounds like maybe a race car driver. <laughs> Funny you say that. My dad used to race uh, like drag cars, so we oh, have wow. that in our really? family. Yes, yeah. Like, like professionally or just out at the mall? Uh, semi-professionally. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. When he was a youngin. <laughs> semi-professionally. Does that mean like? Like there was a league, or does it mean like everybody put in money? Like semi-professional maybe means money was involved. Yeah, there was like really there, involved. There or? was money involved, and he helped build the cars. Yeah. Um, oh wow! So he did that when he was like twenty-three, twenty-four. So. Oh my god, yeah. that's groovy. That, that is cool. Jason Van Arsdal, sodium pentothal. I mean, it's a similar number of syllables. It works. Huh. I'm just trying to think out the sounds. It, but it's Justin Van Arsdal. What did I say? Jason? I, I think you said Jason. Which Justin. is fine, because that's my brother's name, so I get that all the time. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Justin Van Orsdahl, sodium pet. Doesn't quite work. Now, I think na- maybe naming your children, do you have do you, just one brother? So, yeah, just the one brother. Okay. That seems a little bit trollish to like name one Justin, one Jason. Yeah, and it, it was confusing at times. I mean, my <laughs> Do you have middle- a sister named Janice? I do not. He just so. said he only has one other sibling. <laughs> no, he said he had one brother. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. You can't get one past this guy. This lawyer over here. <laughs> oh so we God. back to your trolley parents. Uh, yes. So why did they name you like that? I, I'm not quite sure. I know my mom wanted names with J's. Oh, um, okay. My middle name was almost time. My dad lost that fight. So just in time. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's because I was born at home um, and almost oh. died when I was born. So <gasps> fun, fun fact for you. Wow. wow. Yeah. How did you, uh, I mean, life is all about almost dying. Yeah. But, but how did you almost die? So when I was born, I was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. Oh, no. And my mom was home alone with my older brother, who's uh, two years older than me. So mm-hmm. he was not a lot of help. Is he, that what you're well, saying? Well, yeah, he wasn't really a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> but needless to say, the uh, the yeah. ambulance got there in time and yeah. I am alive. I'm here today. So that's wonderful. Proof of that, yeah. Yeah. Cords do what cords do. Yeah. I learned that being married to a midwife, you know, that I, but I don't know. Before I knew anything about birth, I always figured, well, the court, that sounds dangerous. The court has to come out in a proper way. If it's at all wrapped, like if it's all wrapped around anything, then that's danger. And eh, not so much, not so much, but, um, okay. but it can be scary, I guess. I don't know. We should have Meredith on the show. There you go. I think that, I think actually our numbers would go through the roof. And as you know, we're all about the numbers on this show. Mm. If we if we just turned into like a midwifery and birth podcast, cool. I'm game. Do you agree? I I don't know whether that. I think would there's happen, a huge but... audience for that, though. Well, that's true. But are are there other midwife podcasts already available? I don't know, but there should be. I bet there are. There are podcasts about everything now. Yeah, there really are. Aren't there. Yeah. So um, there's a paper. I've got. Well, I had. I did have a bead in my bonnet. Oh, okay. We're gonna. We gotta debonnet. We gotta db your bonnet. Speaking. Gotta of, get the b out. I for some reason I'm just like, I don't know. I, I have been. Um, Justin, have you heard about the b? I haven't bead. heard about the b. The bead. Bead in the bonnet. Uh, I think a bead in the bonnet. Yeah. I thought there was a b in the bonnet. No, the b in the. I think it's actually bead in the bonnet. So, but so we're hearing about this for the first time. Is what you're saying? Yes. Please tell. You have yeah. not. Okay. Well, this is, I mean, it's kind of serious. Like, I am so over troll culture. Mm. 
Um, you know that you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Troll culture. This idea I know that, what you know, I know generally what you're referring to. Yeah, and it's got a lot of different manifestations. I, I had this interaction online a while back where, where I just observed something. I should have just. I should have kept my nose out of it, really. Mm. But I just observed, like, someone was, like, you know, someone on one side of the political spectrum is, like, irritating somebody else on the other side. And and then, like, responds, like, you know, I you know I just like triggering you, that kind of thing, right? Mm. I just, you know, I just, I love triggering, like, I love it. And, it. and I think I just responded, I just said, why? And, of course, you know, then someone explains it, like, they, as if I was really wondering, like, you know, well, I mm. kind of was wondering, like, you know, it's like, I don't know for sure. But really, by asking why, it's like, have you thought about why you do that? Have you thought about why you enjoy doing that? I, I feel like we're in this point of our culture right now where a lot of people are motivated to trigger others, to troll. Mm. And I don't like it. Okay. Just, that's just my position. What do you, what do you think, Joe? Uh, do, you agree I, with me? do you agree with my observation in general and that maybe having some more introspection about you know, why you enjoy making other people suffer or feel bad or like i don't know it feels so mm. hmm. Hmm. i think that uh internet stuff and social media as a slice of that uh, has helped people indulge lots of new tastes and some old tastes and mm-hmm. some of the old tastes are tastes for inflicting suffering on other people that's been around forever but here's a whole new venue, a whole new uh, place where you can be sadistic and <laughs> uh, harsh and right. mean for your own delight. And that's sad that the taste is out there. And so that when a new vehicle comes along where people can indulge that taste, they just dive right in and start doing that. I, um, yeah. And, I, and so it, it's not um, – I, I, do, I don't think it's new. It probably has some new forms, right? But the sort of – sadistic chaos monkeys that are out there right. they're kind of they're, if it weren't this it'd be something else it's just unfortunate that it's that it happens to be the the high speed global telecommunications platform that we now <laughs> are all sitting in the middle of i feel like more people are being dragged into this because i feel like trolling as a category is something which is a is if, if there's a gravity well of sadism it's pulling on what ordinarily might be teasing and teasing seems harmless, right? And it's pulled towards sadism. And somewhere right. in that, in the middle between those two things is this trolling phenomenon. And the, and when you're a kid, like learning like where the lines are between like good fun right. and and hurting someone's feelings and then, or maybe having your feelings hurt, like that's just part of growing up. That's part of being a kid. Uh, and you have to figure out that stuff. And part of how you figure it out is you make mistakes, like right. you, you say some things, you do some things, and it turns out, gosh, that's I didn't really mean to be that mean. I didn't realize how it would feel, and that's good. You can learn and and uh, do better. That's cool. Um, some people do seem to get stuck in that um, and don't uh, either learn the wrong thing or ca- can't quite learn it or whatever. Um, and it just these are these are venues where you you really can attract just millions of people to watch your crazy behavior <laughs> and that it winds up being a reinforcement for you yeah. that, that again, in a world where this technology doesn't exist, right? You can't gather a crowd of literally in minutes, you know, a, a thousand people, 10,000 people, a hundred thousand people that happens now. And so if you're getting a charge out of that, um, but know, I, I, even, I even see it one-on-one. It's just like, I, and it's almost a defense to bad behavior. I'm just trolling or I, I'm just triggering you. Right. Even though, what was said may have been serious. It was. It has this other purpose, which kind of legitimates it. 
um, as something which otherwise we would have said was just bad behavior. And um, and I want to say, don't do that. Um, and I, I, you know, I do that sometimes. I mean, I'm sure. Like, you know, sometimes you needle people, you go too far. Right. But you should engage in some introspection and say, if, I, if what I'm really doing here is enjoying seeing someone else be made uncomfortable or or triggering them or, you know, I, and oftentimes it's like this multi-step process of like, I think that you are saying these things, and this is the virtue signaling thing. I think that you're saying this because, for these reasons, and therefore, because you're saying these things for these reasons, if I say this other thing, it's going to make you feel bad because it'll show how vapid your reasons are, et cetera, et cetera. It's this whole like layers and layers of spinning out other people's motivations, which I think that whole process, that whole process of going down that road is so corrosive of basic character, and people don't realize it until they kind of get caught up in it because it's become so normalized. And I don't feel like it used to be normalized. Yeah, I don't. That's that last thing that I'm not sure about. Um, I, th- I just don't. Well, for my rec- my recall isn't good enough. I don't know that I have enough information. Um, I can. I do can. I can remember instances of uh, back in college, back in law school, which was a long time ago, uh, about people being like tasteless and rude, and yeah. it tended to be kind yeah, of yeah. not to overgeneralize too much, but it tended to be sort of you know rich or like there was a class element it was it was guys it was guys who came from like a higher ses and um usually conservative Mm. and just kind of being trashy But Hmm? but not always but not always yeah um and just being trashy toward other people because they could be and because they found it fun they they thought it was fun and funny, and this is long before internet stuff and yeah, whatever. Yeah. But it but the sort of well, you know, I can be tasteless and rude, and um and therefore I'm going to be instead of saying okay, well you you can do that. I mean you have the right, and then the First Amendment gets mentioned, which is when my eyes rolls <laughs> back so hard it is yeah. sprain something. But it's like you can do that. Um, why do you want to do that? Like, should you do that? Is that a good thing to do? Because no one's arguing you can't or you don't have the right or whatever, right? But but why is that a good idea? But I feel like that used to be among, you know, there's there's a tribal performance element to this, right? Where it's not just my enjoyment at seeing you be triggered, right? It is that I'm triggering you in front of my tribe, yes. right? And the enjoyment and, in others seeing right. my, me enjoy that I'm doing this, to, yeah. And, 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 and it used to be, I think that tribe was, you know, 18 to 20 year old guys on campus, you know, who were, and, but now it's like uh, people who otherwise should be well-adjusted and past that period, right? Who are like 35, 40, 45, 50 who are doing this. And it's like, but the cost, so the cost of gathering in the circle around while that's happening has been lowered so dramatically that they can just by, if they're, you know, on Twitter or whatever, or on Facebook, whatever, they can, they can get into that. It's very easy to access that stuff now. It's easier to find because of tech searching and it's easier to just be there and witness it. So the cost of, of, Oh, I got to drive three hours to the college campus where there's like, and I don't know anybody. And then it would be weird. Yeah. Right. Yes. So you're just home and minding your own business. But uh, the fact that you can at very, very, very low cost join in a globalized version of Lord of the Flies is like not, it's not good. And there's not just one group that does this. I'm sure, you know, I I sometimes feel pulled into it. And I, I just think, I don't know, like when I said, when I just said, why? And then a bunch of people answer, well, this is just a Trump guy, and this is why he's saying this. And, like, you're explaining the the thing. Like, the, the, the question was an invitation to do what I sometimes try to get myself to do, right, which is to ask myself, why am I saying this? Is this, is this thing I'm saying helpful right. to somebody? Is it, is it kind, right? Is it, 
does it take full account of the fact that people are complicated and have many reasons for what they say and what they feel? And who knows, you know, what this person's been going through in the past week? Do I really want to trigger them? Do I really... Am I really so sure of their reasons that I'm going to attack right. them for that? Like this is, I fail at this sometimes, but like I think we need reminders. We do, and we can be that reminder for each other. Like that's a good thing. I think um, when to, it, it's sort of we're adding to to um, the the idea that like no person is their worst moment or their best moment only. Right. Like right. people are complicated. As you say, people are complicated, right. but we can add to that. Like, yes, no one's their worst moment or their best moment, but why are you trying so hard to be your worst possible moment right now? Right. <laughs> like, why don't you try to be a better moment of yourself? And, and that could be a good, that could be a good thing to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess when I ask it, I'm also like, you know, you know, why, why are you saying this? But also like, why am I saying what I'm saying? You know, it's also turning it around to myself. Um, you know, when you see that you, uh, right. when, when you see someone behaving badly, one way of taking that is, oh, that, boy, that's a bad person. I'm glad I'm not that bad. Right. Another way of saying it is, huh, this is an example of how human beings sometimes are. Let me try to think of all the times I'm that way. Yeah. And when we forget ourselves. Yeah. And, yeah. Anyway, it's been on my mind because it just feels this coarsening. We've talked about it before on the show. Right? Well, the, right. This and concern it's... that the culture is coarsening and that yes. people feel like, well, we need to fight fire with fire. And, you know, it's pretty soon everything's on fire. Like that little <laughs> cartoon with the dog. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. All right. So we, we, this is not, is, is this why we gathered? Uh, yes. This, <laughs> this is why I'm here. I'm like, I want to see all of this. Yeah. <laughs> and don't skip out on Health Corner on my account. <laughs> oh my God, Health Corner. Uh, Do I don't have Health Corner. My bruise is totally gone. It was big and it was right here, but it's totally gone. Hi, Darcy. Um, so no, I've got no Health Corner for you. Hmm. Sorry. Disappointing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you could. You guys could have Health Corner. I, I've had a few of those preventricular contractions lately again. Really? Yeah, just a few. Just a tad. Okay. Not a big deal. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine for a little while. Until it's not. Yeah. All right. But that's all any of us can say, right? So should we talk about the paper? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a great show. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. It's great. <laughs> and your brother, Jason. Yes. Thank you, all of you. Uh, yeah. So, so Joe, you read this. Uh, I Justin, did. Uh, you helped write this. And um, wow. I don't, I, I, so we've talked about I don't this, know what else there is some say. of this idea before. Yes. I think... So why don't why doesn't one of you? I think it was episode one hundred and one. It was Ooh, after. Okay. I think it was after. Was it after the Orlando shooting? Maybe it's after one of them, and it may have been Orlando. So I think there's a new. There's I think there's a new chunk here about the subsidy. Mm-hmm. I think that was not in our original conversation no. at all. No. Um. So I've got a lot of questions, including questions about whether this way of dealing with this problem is actually a pattern for dealing with any number of problems that would be a substitute for sort of more general tort principles mm-hmm. and the just the normal operation of the tort system. It, a la workers' compensation became a way to deal with workplace injury that substituted for the tort system. You're creating a new way of dealing with a different problem, and it's not the tort system. Um, have you established... Have, in, in a way, a paradigm that we could use for dealing with things totally unrelated to this problem, just other problems that could be tackled in this way. But before we get to that, yes. why don't you guys like lay lay out lay down some truth bombs here in your in your proposal? <laughs> well, I think we should proceed like, you know, we we carefully sketched out the conversation in advance and we all have our outlines. So we'll turn to Oh yeah. Roman numeral one of our 
podcast <laughs> conversation <laughs> outline. And, uh, uh, no. Uh, uh, Justin, you, you, you want me to set it up or you want to set it up? How do you want to do this? I mean, I, I can set up like the basic framework of this. Yes. Um, yes. And then I'm going to let Professor Turner jump in and save me uh, as I royally screw this up. Um, so <laughs> he used the P word. He used the professor word. Yes. yes. Well, it, you know, it's, it's hard yeah, as, as a <laughs> yeah. law student to, to get out of that. And if he saves you, it'll be the first time I've seen that happen because I've floundered a lot and he never saves me. Well, great. <laughs> so it'll be nice to see. So, you know, the basic framework of, of the paper is this, you know, guns are, are obviously a problem in our culture with these mass shootings that keep going on. And it seems that, you know, this is one area where the manufacturers of a product are not paying the full price for all of the effects that happen with their product. And so the idea with the paper is let's turn that on its head and make manufacturers not only pay that price, but turn them into kind of the most adamant supporters of gun control reform. And so the question is, how do you turn somebody who is staunchly against something like gun control and turn them onto your side? And that's where this gun subsidy comes into play and also um, where that money goes, uh, this gun fund. So there's a couple pieces with that. Part one of it is when a gun is used to, to kill somebody or used in a suicide, a gun manufacturer is going to pay a fee, a price. Um, the amount of that price can be debated, but throughout our paper, we use a lot of things that go to the lower bound of that. So that's step one. Um, the other part of this is, you know, that gets the gun manufacturer's attention, but the gun subsidy comes in, number one, to save, to save this program from constitutional concerns because without this gun manufacturers would go out of business. It would be just too much money. They don't make enough profit. I but, think that's worth mentioning. So first of all, we the the payment that we would exact would be paid to a federal fund and it would be a kind of, yeah. I think, even stricter than strict liability. It's just an automatic payment to a fund, with, right. like a tax for each death. And we can get into the details of how, you know, how, how that works. Um, uh, but the, um, uh, but what you say is, so, and that was the, substance of, of the conversation we had after that shooting, right? That right. we, you know, $6 million for each death paid into a fund. And you do some, you know, back of the envelope calculations and you get a little bit of data about the profits of the industry and you realize that they can't come close to covering the cost of deaths caused by guns and no, not even close. And so that's where this the idea of the gun subsidy is, you know, let's take money and actually pay the gun manufacturers enough so that they can stay in business. Which would be... Uh, transparent, mm -hmm. uh, th the fact that you would collect information, do some calculations and figure out what the subsidy would need to be in order to keep them in business, then the payment they make per death is clear. Um, and then the subsidy return uh, discounted off that payment they make, I guess it's a return of some of the money. Uh, but then that's clear, like what that amount is. And so it's all been brought out into the open what these things are now. It struck me as a little odd that that the um, that you're you're effectively arguing that th the uh, subsidy is sort of required out of a out of an abundance of constitutional caution. Like it, if you didn't have it, if you imposed the six million payment, but you didn't offer the return of money by way of the subsidy, that you would be raising constitutional concerns about the Second Amendment right that people have to have a, a firearm in the home for their protection. So I don't quite understand 
um, where the constitutional juice is coming from for the idea that you 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 have to have this form of return of money and i guess this is just you avoid the debate i guess well i uh, or, or you don't avoid the debate justin you can or, jump in too but i'm it, thinking that it is um I, I don't take a strong position on whether the second amendment includes a right to manufacture guns um and and justin you may have a different point of view uh, um i i actually think the supreme court was wrong and you know so if it were up to me as i say in the paper i would ban guns yeah justin but, bra- has, but bracket know, but, that so yeah, assume, right. assume heller and and right. uh what's the other case mcdonald is that yeah the mcdonald one? is the chicago so one. assume yeah. that that's gonna that that's right. not going anywhere and it's correct right. to a first approximation which you could contest obviously but assume it's right um yeah, this seems to go a step beyond that to say that that if if in order to begin to cover the costs that their product generates, the point uh, Justin made, if if in order to begin to cover that, you suddenly got into a situation where you couldn't profitably conduct your business at all. Okay, well, okay. I mean, I don't understand why that's a question of constitutional significance. Well, they would all go out of business. They would all go out of bi- so so. There would not only be so even if there's not a right to manufacture, right? Um, but it they, seems like you're implying that there is. Well, no. I mean, um, it would be a de facto ban because they would all – not only would they have to stop manufacturing, they would actually go bankrupt unless, right, the, unless you the, excuse them from liability for guns already manufactured. But there's an enormous amount of guns already in existence and, and owned by people. How many guns are there? How many handguns are there? More than there are people. And probably more than there are households. Mm-hmm. So even you just – it's. I mean, they're not made of 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 candy cane sugar. They don't melt in the rain. They're they're metal. They're they're going to last for decades, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why the existing stock of of guns wouldn't be more than enough to meet the needs of anyone who wanted to buy one uh, to have in their house for safety. There are why people. There, there are people be... who argue that there that there is a right to manufacture. Okay. I think we don't take a position on that in the paper, and I don't personally have a strong position on it. Justin, you might. I, don't know. I, I mean, I I really don't on that. I think part of it is is like you said, Professor Miller. It it kind of avoids the debate altogether. There there would be some people who argue there there is a right to manufacture, and then as Professor Turner said, this you know without this, it's essentially regulating the gun industry out of existence. So even though there are existing guns, think about the people who who wouldn't be able to get access to those because that assumes that people are going to to be able to buy those guns and that gun manufacturers are going to continue to sell in light of our proposal. So the idea is new guns, more people, more access to those guns could happen. I Okay, so the if there's a light implication or a, a sort of very oblique implication that there's a constitutional right to manufacture, you're not really trying to take a position on that. You don't really have to agree or disagree about whether there's such a right. Not in this paper. In order no. to think, right. hey, this is a way to tackle this problem. You impose the payment for death, um, and that death could be a, homis- a murder or a suicide. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you um, do the subsidy, which is sending money back in the other direction, and you do that because you know that if you exacted only the $6 million payment into the fund, that it would drive some or all gun makers in the United States out of business. All. They couldn't possibly meet. It, it's not right. even close. Okay. It's not, and so I think this is an important thing to say, right? That um, this is an industry that cannot possibly cover even a lower lower bound estimation of its social costs. And we do. And on the is the math on that that if you if it's about forty thousand deaths a year, yeah, and it's about six million a death, like e- that's e- just more than the money they make. Way more. And that's even if you discount for suicide. And we can talk about suicide okay. discounting in a little bit. And the six million comes from 
trying to value a life. Yeah. Right. Yes. And there's, I mean, that number goes all over the place. There's lower estimates at like 1.5. EPA puts it Who at- Who was that? Who said 1.5? It was an economist, right? Thaler. Was it Richard Thaler? Uh, okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then you've got agencies like the EPA that values it at closer to 13 million. So the 6 million is somewhere in the middle. And it's, you know, that actual number doesn't matter so much as more as like, what does that account for? And what does that signal to people that, you know, guns do have a cost and it's not being paid. That's the important part of that. The so if it were five or seven or, you know, you're, you're, there's probably a number below which it wouldn't be good to have it fall for practical reasons and symbolic reasons, both. But, but at the, you know, five and above, you're, you're sort of making a significant statement about, yeah, the, a, a gun that causes the death of a person uh, is generating a lot of social cost. And this is our way of stating that cost. Yes. And, and and it's a number that I think is at the lower end of 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 ordinary like agency based life evaluations, you know, 6 million. And and so, you know, you pay this automatically suicide, we'll talk about in a second. Um but um uh and then for each of those basically you get a discount, right, which is the gun subsidy. Mm -hmm. And I think initially at least that's going to be, you know, over 95. Do we we put a figure in there. I mean, I don't think we over ninety five an exact figure, but we did say it would be on the higher side. And then the thought is, over time, that would hopefully decrease because of other things that the gun subsidy is going to do. Which I don't know if we want to jump into that exactly. Yeah. Right well, now, but... I mean, we can say first of all that you know we give the CDC responsibility for setting these rates, um, uh, the various rates involved in administering the program, including the 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 amount of the subsidy, and then publicizing the subsidy. Hey, this. You know, our Second Amendment subsidy this year was, you know, however many billion dollars. This was basically the 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 cost that we paid, um, uh, which is in in the form of refunded liability payments. Uh, this was the cost of maintaining the Second Amendment. You know, so this thing that we think is really valuable. Here's how much it here's how much it cost, and this is a, a lower estimate of the cost because it only includes deaths. It doesn't include all these injuries, right? And it's a lower bound estimate of these deaths. We think. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the, the kind of the lodestar of the paper is this is a subsidy that we are already paying. But it's, it can seem invisible. It's invisible yeah. because it is borne entirely by victims. So the this gets to the question about sort of a more traditional, t simply tort-based approach. So, so I don't remember the year it did this, but my recollection is that, um, that it was in the mid-90s. But co Congress passes a statute that basically takes normal tort law principles off the table, right? For the gun industry. And what is that thing called? The lawful commerce, protection of lawful commerce and something, something act. Do you remember the name? <laughs> it, it's got, I, I remember the, I, I, I'm going to get the acronym wrong if I try it, but it's the, uh, it's the FCCPA, something like that. Yeah. 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 Some, something, I think I thought it was like PLCPA or something. Yes. But the, but the, yes that, <laughs> but I think it has firearm. So F is in there somewhere. I think so. See, this Let's is look how <laughs> so protection of lawful commerce and firearms something, act or something, something along like those that. lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That sounds right. So, so that federal statute, um, and and you can understand the commerce clause rationale for mm -hmm. federal regulation displacing normal state tort law, uh, at least for this part of this that's in interstate commerce, which all of it is aggregate, wickard, blah blah blah. Let's not do that. But so Congress says no traditional tort principle. So one thing you could do because, because one concern is not just like products liability it's 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 um uh locals trying to use public nuisance um and other 
broad tort theories to go after gun manufacturers, right, um, and to shut them down at the local level. And so this is intended to be a kind of immunization against But it does more than that, right? It, it, took, yes, it displaces it a, all of, of but, basic tort law. So one, But not all, because there are, there are some lawsuits, including um, one in Sandy Hook, where the allegation is that they um, uh, negligently marketed- Yeah, which and, is allowed under that act. Okay. Uh, so there are some things, but it, uh, but what you don't, re- it doesn't um, provide recovery for the death simply because the manufacturer manufactured the gun. And it seems to me that a different, um, and you do talk about this in the paper, but it, it does, uh, it, it strikes me that a person could think, oh, the way to bring the cost pressure back onto gun makers is to repeal this law. So right. that traditional tort principles, and maybe you pair off some of it, public nuisance things or more exotic theories, but- if you want to restore tort pressure, restore tort. And why isn't that? It seemed to me you were saying that the reason why that's not the a, the a good thing to do, or as good as your proposal, is because of there are just a lot of uncertainties, and it wouldn't have the subsidy at all, which means it could drive some or maybe even all gun makers out of business. So why is that? Is that the basic idea? Well, why that, that fact that 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 what you just said is going to be a counter pressure and is always going to put pressure at the federal level on kind of usurping the potential for states to do that. Which right. Fa- but, the, the, uh, the fact that it could drive people the, out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to put that in the, potentially the hands of 50 states is something which is always going to create this counter pressure. Um, but also I think what we want to do is create a swift and sure tax like structure so that, so that there is a stable political economy in, in, in which the gun manufacturers are now pushing, right, for, to reduce their liability, to reduce these costs. And if you don't have that, you end up in a situation, you know, like we're seeing with pharmaceuticals, these mass torts and multi-district litigation. And those processes are a mess. Um, if you read, you know, Professor Elizabeth Birch's book, Mass Tort Deals, she goes more in depth into this. But when you get into those types of situations, there is a lot of uncertainty the people who who are harmed generally don't recoup anything. So it's a lot of money for lawyers. And then the whole process is just confusing. And I don't think that gun manufacturers would receive the signal that our proposal would give them. So they would be able to basically kind of pay their way out of this, but in a way that still allows them to survive in a way that doesn't modify their behavior and doesn't modify the products that they make. And what's interesting about this is because this is where it seems like a potential... Your approach to this issue seems like a potential pattern or paradigm for approaching a, a host of issues. Maybe each one would need um, its own statute, but uh, if you develop this as a paradigm, you you could more easily do that, right? So, um, but it's it's worth talking though about about how it's a different paradigm from ordinary strict liability or products, you know, um, strict products liability and and enterprise liability. Um, uh, because, you know, in those cases, the whole idea, right, is that you put the cost on basically the cheapest cost avoider and you also serve the function of spreading costs. So even if a cost can't be avoided, then on distributive justice grounds, like you put it on the manufacturer who then spreads the cost over everyone. So unavoidable costs are shared by all of us rather than just by victims. So there's that usual thing going on here, right? And so our our proposal would serve that function because manufacturers would look to try to produce safer firearms, firearms which are less good at doing the things which are destructive, right? Yeah, um, because they would they will lower the number of $6 million payments right. they need to make uh, because their guns, relative to the guns made by others who aren't pursuing these strategies, would kill fewer people instead of more people. Right. 
Right? And, I mean, yeah, that's how I it mean, would work. That's the feedback loop. And to some extent, that won't be possible. I mean, it won't be possible to, you know, eliminate these costs. And so you'll spread the costs that remain, the unavoidable ones. But there's another way to lower costs here, which is maybe, I think, is a little bit different from the ordinary, you know, script we have in our minds about the way that enterprise liability works and products liability in particular. And that is that um, there are some things that the gun manufacturer can do internally to change things. It's advertising differently, um, making weapons look a little bit different to be less attractive for certain kinds of emotional needs people have. Um, uh, maybe making them harder to fire, you know, trigger locks, all these different mm-hmm. things that maybe they can do. Okay. Uh, and, and they're in a better position to know how to reduce those costs, say, than I am, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people are pushing for, like, assault weapons bans. And every time this comes up, like, the gun people say, you idiot, you don't understand guns, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's like, you're right. I don't understand these things, right? I, I You know, they're very smart people who want to uh, who, who would like more gun control, who study these things, who do know about them. So I, you know, defer to them on this. But, boy, it would be great if the gun manufacturers would take a keen interest in yeah, and, and it, so so that's a that's an ordinary products liability thing. Sure, but there are some ways of reducing costs that are not within the internal control of gun manufacturers, and that's at the retail end. How how can people buy these things? You know, should there be um, an exclusion uh, on uh, for people who have you know domestic abuse or mental illnesses of various kinds, and uh, should there be registry? Should should you be able to commit? I think there was this article by Ian Ayers couple years ago or maybe it was last year about being able to commit not to having firearms i mean it's not true that that's not in the control of manufacturers with a dynamic enough sense of of the strategies they could pursue i mean if they they could integrate forward into the distribution network and so they could sell their guns are sold only at retail stores they control it would be the apple model of guns Mm -hmm. and they would be able to do things like we screen like for the if you want to buy this gun from us we have a screening that we do you go buy the one from the other guy if you don't want to screen so it's just not true they don't have well no but of course they do but uh, you buy from them and then you resell it. I mean, they would have a hard time controlling resales, um, you know, sales at gun shows, etc. There are all kinds yeah. of ways that the guns will percolate through the economy. That's true. Which won't be within their control. Which, well, how do you control those things? And the answer is through law, right? And right now, the gun industry's incentives, I think, are to oppose any and all restrictions on sales, right? And even if they think they're sensible, even if there's some gun manufacturers think some restrictions are sensible and many gun owners do, as we know, I mean, you look at right. polls, um, you know, there's a worry about kind of the camel's nose under the tent kind of idea. So just no regulation at all, an absolutist conception of the Second Amendment, keep you know, all regulations away from our sales of our firearms. But the minute they become responsible for these costs, they're looking internally at ways to reduce those costs, but they're also looking to influence people who have the power to do the things that they themselves don't have the power to do. And do so, you think this doesn't apply to other sorts of uh, products that, um, I mean, it seems, I, I just don't know why in principle that might not be true of other products that cause harm, even uh, when, or, or I suppose in the case of guns, it's especially when, but we, you know, even when they're used basically as they're intended to be used, um, people can s- suffer harm. Mm-hmm. And, and so this paradigm of saying, you know, the traditional tort law stuff, it's too slow, it's too messy, it's the the signals it sends are too oblique and and therefore the a better approach would be this thing, right? Which is you get a payment going into a fund and then you figure out the degree to which, if at all, a subsidy is needed by way of discount and return of some of that money, but all of it is done out in the open so people know what it is, yeah. right? In order to make sure that industry can continue to 
exist to provide the benefits that it does provide. Yeah. Like, isn't it possible that this is just a new paradigm for dealing with all sorts of things that now would get thrown into a mass tort context? But, I mean, there are these other models. You guys talk about the Vaccine Act mm -hmm. as a, th a thing that was done to facilitate the, the uh, creation and sale of vaccines that might not have happened in a conventional tort system. So it just seems like you're creating a new tort paradigm. I think you might be selling the article a little short is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, no, I, I think it could work for other things. And you're right. You, you've got things like the, the National Vaccine Act and also things like the EPA Superfund. The difference, though, between those is they don't have the subsidy portion necessarily going back. So like with the vaccine fund, they're paying 75 cents for each dose that they sell. Yeah. They're not getting a kickback. Well, at least not not you know, on top of things back from the government to them. Same thing with the Superfund. They pay um, for every oil spill that's involved, but they're not getting, you know, money back in the way because those industries can afford it. You know, the pharmaceutical companies can afford a 75% excise tax and, you know, companies like BP, Chevron, whatever sure. can afford. And, and in a system that were set up like this, you could have the responsible agency having the proceeding that concludes that the right level for the subsidy right now is zero. So, so there right. is a subsidy mechanism and it ha just happens to be correctly set at zero. It could be set higher than that at some other point. Um, maybe the payment coming into the fund would need to be raised. You could think of that as the subsidy becoming negative um, by increasing the amount you're paying. But but the fact that you've got these two pieces that can, that work together, it seems to me... The fact of a zero subsidy is just a special case. Joe, it won't surprise you to know that um, that I highly favor um, tuning the institutional form to the social problem, right? And and looking at a social problem and trying to figure out which kinds of institutional designs will best serve to address that problem. Indeed. And I think for many areas of injury where we're trying to reduce, where our main goal is to reduce injury, um, compensation is a big part of what we're trying to do in that system. Compensation to the injured person. To the injured person in Which particular. Which your thing does nothing to help. Right. So so it's, you know, and I, I, I'm not, you know, a full-time tort scholar. Um, I I'm, I'm not even I a part-time tort I play scholar. One, <laughs> I play one on the podcast uh, um, sometimes. But, um, uh, you know, there, there's always been a struggle in tort between kind of corrective justice views and right. deterrence views. And, and is, is it about compensation? Is it about deterrence? And people argue about this, right? right. I, I'm taking no position on that right now, other than to say that for many of the um, systems of uh, uh, regulatory systems involving harm that you're talking about, um, there is the tort system, which is primarily about compensation, but hopefully in a way that also deters, yeah. right? Um, and a, a lot of the strict liability systems are justified by, you know, maybe kind of distributive concerns that um, everybody, you know, this person alone shouldn't bear the cost, we should spread it, but also it pr may provide optimal deterrence. I'm not going to, you know, so there, there may be many different goals, and there, but there may also be, you know, administrative regulations, either at the state or federal level, which address additional um, problems or, or provide, you know, we, we know people keep getting injured in this way, and so we're just going to have yeah. a rule that you can't do this thing. In addition, we're going to allow people to sue and be compensated. So, um, and that path here has been closed off. I mean, I mentioned that the federal statute, which right. you guys talk about. Mm -hmm. And so if you're like when you when you decide, well, we're not going to reopen that door, the 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 sort of the use of tort to both compensate the individual who was injured and in addition, help that individual feel as if 
they have an agency that allows them to call to account a person who harmed them. So it's not just the money, it's the accountability, the, the their ability publicly to say, I insist that you be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that isn't going to happen. Uh, and so, okay. Well, well we, we so I don't think we closed the door. Yeah, uh, we, left, we left it. <laughs> a, a gap a little bit um and, and so how like what's the what how would that happen so well first of all i think that um uh well one thing is that the the fund does not the fund we're not precluded from using the fund for compensation so the fund might you know i identify particular times areas reasons to compensate victims using its monies like we generally favor you know, gun violence prevention, prevention or violence prevention is used for the fund, kind of like you know, tobacco funds, but but hopefully targeted in, mm-hmm. a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's nothing about this that precludes people from suing for compensation, the people who shot them, right? Uh, or, or the people who committed the violence. And that's always been one of the things here, right? Yep. Who's really responsible for these deaths? Yep. And, and products liabilities, you know, in general, you know, even if you think, well, maybe the person who sold it should have inspected it. There's always this question about who should have inspected it and what, and, and going to strict liability says, let's just not even worry about that, right? Yeah. We can spread the cost generally and, and uh, um, there are all kinds of reasons to do that, right? Um, here, I think we're going uh, to, the, the goal was to kind of disaggregate those things. So there might be cases where someone is deserving of compensation from someone who wronged them, right? And I don't think we're doing anything that precludes them from going after the person who wronged them with a gun, we don't even preclude them from going after gun manufacturers in ways that they already can, as we're seeing in, in the Newtown litigation. We're not even closing the door to opening it up more broadly to going after manufacturers, but we are suggesting that this is a, I think, better way of achieving the regulatory concern about reducing right. violence, right? It may not be the best way of achieving compensation for victims, which involves some moral questions about the responsibility of manufacturers. But I do think it's a swifter, sure way of altering the incentives of gun manufacturers within the political economy around gun violence. Yeah, and you, and you guys have laid that out very clearly. I think I think the thing you were just saying, I think, hasn't been laid out as clearly that how many doors remain open to dealing with other facets of mm-hmm. of, of social correction that the tort system affords, and it might be helpful in another draft to add a paragraph or two about the fact that here are things that are completely consistent with that could happen and wouldn't uh, our proposal w- w- really wouldn't address that wouldn't stop it wouldn't mm. encourage it either it's just at right angles to that set of issues yeah um uh, and i don't know what do you think about that justin do you agree i, I mean i think it's a fair point but uh, but i think you know it's it's kind of an aside from from the paper um yeah i don't i don't i don't necessarily want to close off the compensation you know door but but the main goal of this again is to to illuminate that that cost that that we're all actually paying right now. Yes. Um, it's just you know that that could be an entirely separate paper too, going into the compensation system because there's other problems within the tort model with causation and stuff that mm-hmm. I don't think that we wanted to dive into necessarily in this paper. Well, it's not just that we didn't want to. Well, we wanted to design a system where there is no need to dive into those questions. Yeah. Right. There's no should, need right. to consider moral responsibility. There's no need to consider causation. There's no need to consider. There is a need to consider self-defense. I mean, yeah. a re- but, so a reader but, could be forgiven for mistaking there. There is no need to talk about to think you all have thought about it and think it shouldn't happen. Whereas you're not saying it shouldn't happen. You're saying it whether it happens is a totally separate matter. It's a separate matter yeah. aside from 
using the tort system. So we don't close the door on this, but I, if I were to write it, I probably would close the door on general suits against gun makers for deaths caused by guns. Right. This is the system for that, right? Yes. So we're kind of disaggregating the traditional compensatory elements of the tort system from the more regulatory elements. And we're saying, like the tort system, let's create strict liability. The, the theories there work well, but let's do it in this particular way. So there's liability to a fund rather than to a person. But there still could be liability for gun deaths. Um, uh, with compensation owed to people, but on a more specific theory. And I would um, say even separate from the liability question, it seems to me the fund could be used and the CDC could, for example, have proceedings where people who have suffered gun violence could come and tell their story in a way that's you know, this is part of the information gathering function right um, that you guys identify at various in various points and in various mm-hmm. facets come and tell their story in a way that's publicly recorded and all that we can learn from that is is put forward publicly um, th- that function of giving victims voice could just by itself be a, an effective use of some of the resources that are generated by this fund yeah seems to me um, that, and that's that, something like, that, like Justin says. I think that is, you know, the ways of tra- using this fund would be another paper. And the traditional, for, like the traditional tort system, provides those opportunities of voice. Like you hold someone yeah. accountable because you sue them and you make them come and right, you make absolutely. them listen to you. And right. I think that's important. Yeah, and we could build that element of confrontation into the administrative process um, to the extent that the that we think there's a kind of a dignity element in confronting the manufacturer of the instrumentality. Right. right? I, I do think that the primary purpose here is to give the manufacturer an incentive to be on the side of reducing deaths. And, it w- and if it succeeded, I mean, if the proposal were put in place, it seems to me it's it's clear that it that it would do that. Um, and including, I should say, you know, we I mentioned the internal external thing, like it would do the things it can do, and then it would probably also lobby for effective regulations. Right. right? You see a real push toward things which might be more effective, um, including possibly gun buybacks. Right? Sure. Um, because it may just be cheaper to buy some particularly dangerous guns back. Especially ones that were manufactured, you know, pre like 1983 that don't have any safety capabilities to them and could take them out of. And we talk about this later on about market share liability and proportional liability and taking them out of that pool. So it would also reduce their costs that way. It, the That part of the paper I found especially interesting and informative because, you know, I'm a person who doesn't really know very much about guns at all. Um, so just thinking through the, you know, how do you know what which firearm or which type of firearm caused a death? It turns out to be hard to figure out. And, <laughs> right. I, and I didn't know that. And we I thought, was like, oh, yeah. that's really interesting and informative. And I'm right. glad I learned some stuff about that. Yeah, because when we first talked about this idea, right, it was just like, you know, let's just charge for each death, right? But you got to know who to charge. Right. And, um, and there's a, um, at crime scenes, Unsurprisingly, perhaps guns are not always recovered, uh, and, uh, but they are j- recovered. You know, virtually one hundred percent of the time for suicides and for um, and and for accidents, and those are a, those are a sizable portion of, of gun deaths. Yes, um, I, I think we. Let me just say, should we just talk about suicides before we come back to this identification sure. issue? Yeah. Um, so the proposal does discount for. Suicide, so it's not because the a full certain amount million. of suicides would happen anyway. That's even exactly if guns weren't right. available. Yeah, right? so, so we try to be really clear about this. This is not because suicides are somehow you know the person is responsible. This is not a moral calculation that like right. That, um, because you know all gun deaths, someone has done something bad, right or wrong, except maybe for accidents and and for those you have a different 
maybe a different moral calculus. Um, but what we do want to charge for are those deaths which would not have occurred but for guns, where, where, um, because we know from the evidence, and we would charge CDC with continuing to compile this evidence, right, and to calculate this on an ongoing basis, um, you know, what, what is the number of excess deaths caused by guns? And you, know? you don't mean determining this, like, suicide by suicide. You mean determining actuarially, roughly, exactly. yep. what percentage of them would not have happened. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Right. As, as people have already tried to do. Um, but you know, gun research is was has been set behind quite a bit um, by restraints on federal funding for studying guns, and like we just right. don't do a good job of this. And I right. think that you know, part of our proposal is to try to get people intensely interested in in actually producing good science on this. It is um, a you know yeah. a general just to step us step back and a, a general point. It is um, I mean you, you're focusing on trying to get institutions and political economy to function in a much better way. And which you've said a number of times here right. and the paper's very clear on, which I think is really good and important. It, I do also feel, having looked at this paper and, and seen more of the detail and thought about it, you know, uh, if we could pass this statute, we wouldn't need this statute. Mm. Um, be, we, I, I don't know that we could actually get this. Um, e- even something this, like, sane <laughs> in terms of... <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to bankrupt you. It's we're just trying to make public costs that are, and this these are principles everyone accepts in life generally. That you know, you make a thing and it imposes these costs. You've, that's got to be brought back to bear on you, and the blah blah blah. Um, it just seems like um, so. So let me put it this way: I noticed in one of the footnotes, and 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 uh, make sure I got this right. Um, that sort of like in the last two years, the the. Uh, gun makers have spent about $10 million lobbying. And then in the mm-hmm. two years before that, it was like $6 million. Is this ringing a bell? Justin? Yeah. I'm not sure if th- those are the exact numbers, but I know which, which but no, you're talking and, and it's about. Recent, this is like in recent years yeah. mm-hmm. they spent, and this seems like, oh my gosh, they're spending a lot lobbying, right? They I are. Mean, they're selling yeah. up, like 10 million in two years, 6 million in two years. Okay. So that's four years. So that's 16 million. That's less than three of your payments. Mm-hmm. Which well, like th- three of your payments happens like, oops, there go another three. Oh, there's another three, right? So they're Except spending- Except they're going to get 99% back. But but they're yeah. spending in four years what you, what you want to take just from three deaths. So the, the amount of money we're talking about flowing in this direction, and then as you say, flowing back- In huge amounts. In, in huge amounts, and then dialed down over time, right? The, the, I just think this is- it's very difficult to imagine this breaking through the wall of resistance that that has grown up around doing anything to uh, address the situation in a way that might lead to fewer guns and fewer gun deaths. Well, so I, I just feel a little bit dis- of despair about it. So I'm just sharing that with you guys. It's not because of the paper right. yeah. or a defect in the paper. The idea is super brilliant. No, 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 no. I mean, it is. It is a defect in the paper. Like. I could make a proposal that all guns disappear, right, or that we we ban them all, or that or that you know we we enact a an advertising program which will make no one want guns anymore. Like you know, I can make all kinds of proposals which would solve the problem, right? But um, if it's not at all practical, then it's of no use. And so I think the criticism is 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 deeper than than you suggest. Like you know, an academic. This is not the kind of article I normally write, right? This is addressed at a very kind of practical problem, and it has a very practical solution to it and if it in fact is impractical then in some ways the paper fails right 
So I don't know. How do you, how do you respond to that, Justin? I, I mean, I, I get your point. Um, and you're right. I think you know, gun manufacturers, the NRA, politicians that support that that type of thing would fight this um, because they're so accustomed to fighting this. But if you step back and look at our proposal versus something like a full-on repeal of, of the, the law we were just talking about, at least our proposal, as Professor Turner puts it, provides kind of a, a more logical, sane methodology that still allows them to produce their products. And it doesn't expose them in a way that, you know, traditional tort liability would. So it's it's a nice, I think it's a nice middle ground. Um, and it's a way that makes everybody as happy as possible. And I know that sounds kind of weird saying out loud, but as opposed to just repealing, you know, the law that currently stands. Or, in or putting in place random bans, right? I mean, that's another yeah. option. So I, I think what's clear is you would need a lot of energy to push this kind of thing through. You push it through once and you kind of relocate where the fighting is going to happen. Yeah. Um, in, in a way which I think is very positive. I agree. And so, you know, it, 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 I think it's right that something like this doesn't happen until there's another tragedy. You know, maybe it's like, you know, I, I can't even imagine, you know, you can you can imagine the scenarios um, which are even worse than the ones we've experienced so far that might produce some incentive to do something. My fear is what will happen is it'll be... Um, you know, some kind of assault weapon ban or something like that, which is, you know, there's actually decent evidence that there were some positives from the assault weapon ban. It did almost nothing, I think, to, well, I don't know if almost nothing, but it probably didn't reduce suicides very much. But I'm yeah. actually, I want to pull back on that because um, uh, the production and advertising of assault weapons has probably led to an increase in kind of gun culture. And the more guns in the home, the greater the chance of suicide, et cetera. Yeah. So I don't want to say there's no connection, but... You know, we got it, there are forty thousand deaths a year. It's it's a hell of a lot, and yeah. uh, and in other areas where we have that many deaths, we have complicated regulatory machinery, right? Intended to pr- more precisely as best we can to try to, you know, how many deaths, how many auto deaths would there be if there were no auto regulations, right? Yeah, you know, and the, we, we, and harnessing the information in the hands of the people who know the most about the product is a super smart way right. to try to begin to make headway quickly on you know, making stuff safer, leading to fewer deaths. Right. So, and and it has, and this proposal focuses on that kind of very pragmatic, common sense way of approaching the problem. And I think that's terrific. One thing I did not say uh, um, uh, here, or we did not say in the paper, is that, you know, this is a proposal. Of course, if it's it's a subject of legislation, the legislation can be a little bit different. You could lock in a 100% subsidy for the first five or 10 years, right? And it would just be a matter of accounting. Let's account for every death. Let's account for every cost. Right. Um, not every cost. Let's 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 lower bound the cost, right? Um, what would be good about that is that, I think, would get them interested in making identification of the responsible weapon at, like at a bare minimum, right. they would want to do mm-hmm. that, right? Like e- even if they, because it would, e- even if they're getting a hundred percent subsidy, they still would want to make fewer payments. I would think so, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. So, so they would invest in helping make the firearm responsible, at least by category, by manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Hey, that was from us. No, it wasn't from us. It was from you. Like they would at least get on board with that right away, and that would be progress. Yeah, like knowing be. which weapons were causing which deaths, right? Absolutely. A, a lot of this is taking away arguments. Right. And um, so nothing in our proposal requires like lists of gun owners. It doesn't it doesn't require any particular regulations. The only regulations which, you know, the more aggressive regulations about ownership and everything that would come later 
and it would be the gun manufacturers pushing for them, right? Right. And because <laughs> yeah, they'd want to reduce their payments, right? And and there, and it doesn't involve a ban put in place by people who don't know weapons, right? It's it doesn't um, it doesn't bankrupt the industry. Um, it, it doesn't ban anyone from owning any particular gun. It doesn't. All it does is take better account, right? And so, depending on how, if the subsidy is a hundred percent, then the, the number of arguments against the program, it seems to me, are, are 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 rapidly dwindling. It's like, well, we would prefer people not know which guns cause deaths. Like that—that's a pretty, you know, that's pretty far from God well, live America, but, Second Amendment. Territory. No, but now I think we're actually drilling down onto something that that um, the the idea that the sort of gun ownership and rugged individualism and the you flag as the kind of twisted belief but uh, or or just kind of fancifully weird um the idea that you could oppose government tyranny um with guns like the reason to own guns is so that you can fight back against a tyrannical government which just sounds nonsensical to me personally and and which is not the reason that the supreme court gave for finding a not at all right but 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 I think you're. I think when you peel down and you like those arguments are still going to be left and uh, and are and this proposal it because it involves the state, right? Acting in a way does not join with and can't overcome that argument. The argument that look the problem is state involvement. Full stop. And you guys are proposing a form of state involvement. And that's what we'll always oppose because we're always about the rugged individual. Uh, remaining free of government tyranny right. and and so anything that gets the government more involved in us doing what we're doing it sort of it it like it tames us it neuters us it makes us unable to resist tyranny i, I think that's i don't i i don't agree because i think the state only gets involved when somebody died because of a gun and all it tries to do is identify the manufacturer of the gun Right. So local law enforcement, which actually tries to find the person who fired the gun and the particular gun is much more invasive. Right. They're the ones actually going out and looking for particular guns. All we're saying is if there's a death, then the government becomes interested in the gun and not even the gun, but the category of the gun. Right. And, think- and, and that doesn't involve the creation of any lists. It doesn't involve it doesn't put the government in between any potential buyer and the gun manufacturer. All it says is, hey, when there's a gun death, we want to you know, let local law enforcement, what you find out, let us know. Yeah, right? and uh, everything you're saying makes sense, and I think is is co- true and correct of what you've proposed, and and what it uh, requires, and what the relative intrusiveness of what like just local law enforcement trying to solve crimes and mm-hmm. the difference between those two things. I totally get what you're saying. Um, I just I'm um, I'm thinking about like okay, so what is that? And it's a mystery to me. So I'm casting around in the dark a bit, but it's it's like, what's that residuum? What's that last little layer of, and it just, to me, it feels, it actually feels kind of gendered. And it feels like, you know, you all with your nanny state stuff, you want to make us kids and you want to take away our freedom and take away our ability to resist yeah, but overwhelming greatest, government by making big overwhelming government. That's the government greatest and, virtue of this proposal is it is it doesn't is it doesn't do that right? It 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 gets and I'm saying out of definition. A person could say or could perceive definitionally it has to do that because it's creating another layer of you we you make us pay you and yes you give it back to us 
But you know, it was our money to begin with. Why are you no, making us pay you? I don't. Th- I don't think any. Well, do you understand? You, no. you surely you understand what I'm I don't, saying. I don't because it just doesn't sound serious to me. So so if my if my concern okay, I th- is, I think it's the it could be the most serious because it's the kind of stuff that doesn't it's it doesn't feel particularly rational. It feels kind of imp- like emotional yeah. and impulsive. But those can be the hardest things to get grapple with and and successfully well, counter. I, what I would say is if 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 you want to do anything about the gun violence problem. If you think anything could be done at all or should be done at all, then this is kind of the least intrusive way of doing anything and maybe the most effective. And it puts people who know most about guns kind of in charge of helping to figure out how to solve the problem. Which is like an amazing combination. Yes. Right? It, to have it be right. incredibly effective and least intrusive and right. most knowledgeable people. That's an amazing... But, but I think like, you're, you're right. If someone is so committed to the idea that we should do nothing about this problem and that we should not even know... The costs that this so-called right to resist not government only, tyranny or like not th- only should we not do it, not only should it not do, but the mere fact that you're trying to do it shows that you misunderstand fundamentally what guns are about. Like it's like it seems that inverted, and I and because I'm not such a person, I sort of feel weird even saying it because I'm sounds like I'm well, trying you know, to depict someone else's crazy. part of the paper, we kind of wrote this as a as kind of a compromise. And I did that in the original blog post too, where I'm like, you know, if we're up to me, we wouldn't have these things. Like, I'm not a gun person. I don't care about these things. Right. We, you know, it's like, it sounds like a weird, expensive hobby to me. Right. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you can say it's about resisting government tyranny, but like that's, it's not going to do the job. And, and anyway, so it's a hobby, right. But it's a hobby, which is arguably protected by the second amendment. Like I would just get rid of these things. But I understand not everybody is that way, right. and I think Justin, you were you were uh, a mean, person who's not that way. And, and so and that was think? my hesitation because you know, oddly enough, growing up in California, like where I grew up, is actually a big gun haven. You know, a lot of my bosses from the place that I worked. Now, did at, you actually grow up in Gun Haven, California? Well, that, <laughs> that'd be an amazing name for a town, Gun Haven. So, I grew up in a, in a place called the Antelope Valley, which is just this broad desert. It looks like Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of people out there love their guns. And I had supervisors that had, I'll just call it an arsenal, rooms filled with guns. They are the people that you're talking about that, you know, you can grip this from my cold, dead fingers. Don't let the state come in here and get that. And so that's part of the proposal is to kind of compromise with those people to say like, we're not coming for your guns. You're still going to be able to buy guns. You're still going to be able to shoot your guns at the target range. Have fun. Um, and we're not, and we're not asking for the money from you. Exactly. We're asking for it from the company that made the gun that's responsible for the death. And if, and if your gun is never responsible for a death, it would not trigger a payment from the company. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but that all sounds very calm and very like trying to engage people's reasoning faculties. Well, and and to the to the people that you're talking about, we may never reach them. I mean, the, those types of people are are not going to change their opinion. I don't know what the solution is if there is a solution to change their opinion. But this proposal, at least, best takes them into consideration and doesn't discount the fact that. For some people, there is some benefit to to having a firearm, whether that's having fun at the target range, hunting, home defense, or for those people who think that they're going to be able to stand up to their government with their, you know, their gun, which, good luck. Um, we're, you know, it still allows them to, to have that thought and, and to have those guns. At- and the... You know, my view, the evidence is that keeping a gun in the home is risky. Like, you know, however you think it's going to contribute to defense, it probably won't as a rational matter. But like, again, people can have different views about that. So this proposal is aimed at persuadable people. 
and not people who think that guns are worth any amount of social cost. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know how you, you, you say. And including, as you said a few times now, including the cost of not knowing anything about it. Right. right like yeah, like right. learning as little right. as possible about actual numbers. But I think it's also important to say that our proposal is not like a pre-negotiated pitch toward persuadable gun enthusiasts. Right. I hope it is that. But it's also a suggestion to people who favor doing something about guns that this is a better way to proceed. Because it takes advantage of knowledge that many of us do not have, right? That this is a better way than, you know, just an assault. Maybe an assault weapon ban is a good thing. Um, But one way we find that out, right, is to change all the incentives. You know, imagine that the NRA is is not, you know, the the, um, political tribal NRA, but is actually, you know, um, a gun manufacturer's association, which it is. It's a gun manufacturer lobbying association. but, But now because they have different incentives, right? It is now acting on their behalf, which may mean that they actually go and lobby in states for various kinds of restrictions, which will make their which will reduce the costs. Um, and so, like the way we find out, the way we get good information is we get the you know the brains that know this stuff most, the most experienced, to tell us wh- where's the low hanging fruit here, right? You know how how do we actually get on top of this problem? So I'm not just trying to create a proposal here, and I don't think Justin, this is your intent either, Mm-mm. that would. Like, you know, it's a halfway, you know, it's a watered down gun control thing, which is meant to reach persuadable, reasonable gun owners. Like, again, I hope it does that. I think, Justin, you yeah. hope it does that. But I'm act- I actually think this is the best idea, short of, right. short of, you know, an, over- an absolute ban, um, which I think would be the best idea. But like I understand, and which that, is like, totally unavailable, both on constitutional grounds and well, uh, uh, well, it's, to, to, right. without overturning those decisions, yada yada. It's so, unavailable mm-hmm. on Supreme Court constitutional grounds. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, meaning that they're wrong, but that's okay. So yeah. I do think it would be, and I hope others will or you will. Um, I I do think this could be a paradigm that the model of the paper, a federal statute that rules out certain kinds of state law tort approaches because it puts in place an administratively uh, engineered payment in this direction, subsidy in that direction, which could be a subsidy of zero, Mm -hmm. um, and and a fund that deals with these issues. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. um, I'd have to think more, Justin, maybe you too, about administratively, like, is this a, how, how novel is that? But like, that that was the attraction part is to disaggregate the compensation element from the regulatory element. Like both of those are important. It's really cool the way that strict products liability can do both of those things. Yes, but it's uh, but maybe in some situations it is uh, it's better to disaggregate them um, and have systems which kind of look the same but are filtered through different institutions and have different purposes. Yeah, and the ones like so the disaster. Um, the mass tort or disaster stuff where like there are these big funds to make payments and, and like Ken Feinberg is putting yeah, in charge the of all of them. And, fund and, right. Yeah. Like that's a whole nother, like that's really doing the compensation part. Right. Um, and so you can, you can take different slices of these social problems. And then pure administrative, you know, um, notice and comment regulation, regulating mm-hmm. highly regulated industries is just doing the former part, just doing the other part, right? Just the pure regulatory part yeah. without compensation. Um, you can think of uh, a lot of environmental regulations preventing, say, the draining of wetland. Like lots of people are harmed by things uh, that those regulations are trying to stop. Yeah. But the regulations are just trying to stop the conduct and therefore prevent a bunch of harms from arising rather than compensate people who are After harmed. The so, fact. Yeah. Right. And so this is kind of like using the, the tools which are developed in a field of compensation, 
which also understood itself as about deterrence and risk spreading, right? Um, but by filtering it through the administrative agency and by having these automatic rules and these like lower bounding and everything, then we, we're just focusing on the regulatory signal, right? Um, but then also, I guess, acquiring a pool of funds that you could use for compensation. But I think that you're, you know, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it more, more broadly as to, you know, what kinds of social problems should call for disaggregation from the uh, regulatory signal versus compensation elements. And I don't know. Um, but this is one, it seems yeah. to me. Right, cool. I think one off the top of my head that that might work, and I'd have to think about this more, is you know the opium epidemic. And maybe that's a place that this model might work to send a signal to these pharmaceutical companies, hey, this stuff that you make is dangerous. You're lining your pockets with millions and billions of dollars. You're not really paying a price for that. Yes, they're going through these mass tort suits and, and these MDL suits, but they're really coming off scot-free and so they continue to do the same thing over and over again so maybe there and i would have to think about other things where it might be able to work but sure Hmm. yeah yeah that's cool you know one um did you have other questions joe no those i mean we've hit the one the main ones that i wanted to talk about are there things you wish i had asked you about that i didn't ask you about no i was going to mention one thing just about publication oh okay cool um, if we want to get off the substance sure but i mean yeah people should read this paper what is the title again the, the gun, gun subsidy. subsidy. There we go. In, In stereo. stereo. Yes. Nice. <laughs> so people should read it. They should definitely read it. And then it will be coming out in a law review near you at some point soon, or maybe yeah, maybe. Not. <laughs> so that's the hope. Gonna... Wait. So what were you going to say about? So um um we so this is about the crazy submissions thing. So mm. you know Justin and I wrote this paper together, and actually when I started uh, in in teaching. I kind of assumed that I would write all my papers with my students. That was kind of like a, I don't know, a dream. Sounds like it's too fanciful, but like it, it was a desire of mine to to partner with students uh, who wanted it to be a little bit more like grad students, at least in this way. And and does that come from your math PhD experience maybe, that like you the, thought of every it that other way, fe- every other field works this way? Yeah, but, that's but, true. But yep. I also have experience. You know, it, it just is more. Uh, fun and enlivening when we work deeply with other people on sure. projects, right? Without uh, a doubt. And 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 you get outside of your own. So, you know, lots of law profs know like, it can be fun to co-author. But I think also this like deep, uh, a deeper relationship with students can can be good for them and also uh, good for us. For sure. Um, yep. And they can then come to your podcast. That's right. Be great. That's right. Um, and, <laughs> Dreams and, do come true. <laughs> I mean, for various reasons, I haven't done it up until now. I've had many, many great students where I should have done this, but a lot of the projects have like spanned over various semesters, and mm. I didn't always have. I haven't really put in place the right. kind of the the many institutional design that would make this possible on an ongoing basis. So, and, was there a seminar, Justin, that you took that that created the opportunity, or no? I happened so I had Professor Turner for my property class. And I think it was like a semester after that, he approached me to to kind of be his RA. And so I did a couple projects for him. Um, and I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You worked on the segregation piece, like you I, helped me yeah. edit that. And uh, worked a little bit on your standing piece that I think is still in the works. And then, you know, Professor Turner approached me about joining him on this paper. And I had listened to the episode, so I knew a little bit about what it was about. Yeah. And of course, I jumped at it because... I would love to be a law prof someday. So for for me as a student, you know, this is a great opportunity to hopefully get published again. It's another writing experience and it's, you know, different from the note writing process where I am working more hand in hand with the professor and so I get to pick up on things and and polish my writing in a way that 
I haven't been able to do yet. And now, I think we went through these rounds of editing where you saw like what. Oh, the, yeah. Like there's another and I, I did this in my clerkship. I got this experience really like, you know, to do a piece of writing and then really to see for a a really, you know, the care that it takes to turn the raw writing into something that really sings, that really mm. speaks to you. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, we could probably edit this another 10 times. Well, for and, sure. And, but like, I think you see that in a way that the student note experience doesn't because oftentimes they're so wedded to this idea of what a note should be that yep. they, you don't quite get it, like how to make the idea sing. Um, and uh, that's not a co-authored piece. That's a, the, the, that's a student authored piece. So they, it's right. a different context. It's a different it context. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd had this idea and I'd already kind of written a little chunk up and I knew that to get it over the finish line, like I, I thought this is an idea that people should hear about, but it's yep. also like, you know, I'm, I've got some, a bunch of other research going on yeah. and, and I know Justin was into admin law, wrote a great, mm -hmm. wrote a great note and, and thinking, oh, well, maybe, maybe Justin could help me think about these kind of the more admin -y side of this and we could do something together that would be better than what either of us could do alone. And so, uh, so it seemed like a really good idea and it was a, it's like a limited project. It's a, it's, it's not a sh short, short piece. It's not a, you know, short essay. Um, but it, it has a kind of limited enough scope where there were only a certain number of questions that we wanted to, to ask here and answer. And, and so it seemed like the, a good vehicle for this. Um, and, and I would, I would love to do more and more of it, but it's, it, again, it's like finding the way to create this like many institutional structure where, where we can have students who, you know, Justin wants to be a professor. Not all, most students don't, right? They, they True. most of our students don't want to be us, right? They want to be <laughs> lawyers in, in X capacity or Y capacity, but some amount of them do. But like, even if they don't, like quasi graduate students, you know, they they want this additional experience. There should be a way to make that happen, uh, more like other fields. And what I've run into is, I don't know, you know, it's out for submission, and and we got um, gotten a few rejections, but one rejection in particular said we have a policy that we don't accept pieces co-authored with students. What? So yep. lots of law reviews don't accept student-written pieces. Okay. Right? Uh, other than their own students uh, in their notes section. And oh. I, I can understand this as a gatekeeping thing. You don't want to sure. be swamped with like 40,000 articles, right. right? But they don't accept... And, and so I emailed this uh, them back at the you know the various That's addresses. That's a little weird. Well, I, I just wanted to know the reason for this. So I, I was, I'm springing this on you. And Justin, you and I have only talked briefly. Like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand why you would have this. So, so not only is it like, not only are we weird in this way that we're unlike other fields in the way the students edit the journals and everything, but like now they're kind of ruling out a style of publication that <laughs> that that is essential to the operation of basically every other field of human inquiry, right? Which is like the right. the major professor writes pieces with the graduate students or the postdocs, right? Yeah. So what what um what harm? Are they seeking to prevent with this policy that rules out a thing? I don't, you know, what do you, do you I mean, I, I think that's the question. I think, you know, their response is going to be the same or similar to. I don't think they're going to respond to me. But. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, but their thought process is probably something similar to, you know, not accepting other student pieces in that, oh, that's another student who's getting a chance at publication when our own students could get that chance. I think it's kind of a. A horrible argument, and and to Professor Turner's point, it's precluding a, a type of publication and a type of learning experience for for other students to partake in. So I don't agree with it, but I think maybe that's the hesitation of we're looking out for our own. We're gonna kind of gatekeeping thing. Yeah, I suppose that, I suppose they could think that it it is a little odd that that 
I mean, even on its own terms, that argument would seem to make sense only if the faculty member who's submitting the paper is at your institution, right? Because it yeah. that's not a student who was going to that's not a student who's going to get a publishing opportunity with that faculty member at your school. Neither of them are at your school. So that seems, it just seems weird in that, if that's your argument. Unless you think it's going to be a pervasive practice that people will take student notes and add their own name to it in order to like advance the student or advance themselves. Like there could be an anti-exploitation angle or an anti- End run around. Or an anti-end run around the student note bar like those are but those both seem like very very unlikely to me the most likely result here seems to me that uh if a lot of places have this policy that which stu- i've never heard of by the way but i yeah. don't know that i've ever sought to really f- well i think the most likely out, thing so. is that students who contribute a lot and really should be added as co-authors like in 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 other fields where there are kind of generous co-authorship norms or at least the potential for generosity is there um is that you just simply just don't list them like you know yeah which again is quite um um, that's quite counterproductive. Right. It's Because it, it doesn't recognize, sort of right. It, it kind of says, well, any contribution of a student is just as an RA. Yeah, and weird. like, you know, I originally wrote this blog post and, and I, you know, it came up with kind of the basic framework. And so there's an argument here though. Well, I could just author this and Justin just provided really excellent <laughs> RA help. Right. But like, that would be wrong. Correct. It, it would be wrong. And, and, um, and so like, we're kind of like being penalized for, um, for for introducing, I think a uh, a co-author for introducing a co-authorship norm, which is which again is it prevails um, and pervades now, other other disciplines. So, Justin, are you are you approaching the end of your time at the law school? I am. So, I'm a third year. This is my last semester. So, this is you know kind of a last chance to publish something before. I go off into, you know, quote unquote, the real world. So that's another weird thing about this policy, because in in the August submission window, presumably this objection would not exist. Yeah. If yeah because he's he's not a student. No he's not longer. a JD candidate. I think Correct. They he would have graduated. So yeah. and th- so making this even more bizarre, like it's it's applied and it only could be applied in this window. Well, you say time. it's bizarre. Like I, I emailed them. I, 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 I did. I said, I'm not, you know, complaining about the policy. I just don't, I, you know, I would like to do more of this. And if there's a if they have reasons why they think it's bad, maybe maybe there's experience at that journal in their historical memory where this has been exploited. And so, like, and I would like to know it, these things. Sure, that would be good right. to hear if there is a, an exploitation I, risk. It would be good to know about it if and so that one could guard against it. But it, yeah, um, but I haven't been able to come up with any good reason on my own, and I doubt I'm going to hear back from them. I but mean, it might maybe. be something as stupid and simplistic as this: of somebody created that policy years back. They don't even know why it was there. I mean, we have, yeah, you know, not so to, they know not to get rid of it because, oh my gosh, what if it turned out to be important? And we don't know why. Yeah, and I mean, we have we have policies like that in in our journal too that I question and, and stupid things like, you know, when we name our notes, everybody's got that first part colon something else, and everybody seems to have to do that. Like it's an unspoken rule. So there's a lot of behaviors in law reviews in general that are. Then we make those jokes early on in the run of the you, show about. <laughs> Naming an article like uh, making an article about colons like yeah. colon colon, <laughs> <laughs> right? The law of internal organs or something but, like that. <laughs> but but the um, yeah the sort of the a a, a problem with uh, rapid turnover in leadership, which is the law review model is predicated on, means you do have this sort of buildup of like policy cruft yeah. that you can't get rid of. Right. Uh, you have an overload of Burkean reasoning. Yeah. Right. And and um, the the you might hesitate until you're about 
ready to go, then you might feel confident enough to know, oh yeah, that's totally unnecessary. Actually, I'm, I'm already out of here. Like I'm not yeah. focused on that anymore. <laughs> right, right. I've got other things to do than worry about policy. And look, crud. I mean, th- this journal has many, many, many good articles. And they probably wouldn't have taken the article anyway. I don't know. I mean, they have many good articles to choose from. And so many of them don't present this. And so what's the downside of just kicking it out for this reason? Like it may, maybe you have a policy that if there are any typos in the cover letter, which, you know, cover letters, well, why do we even yeah. have to send in cover letters? Yeah, there's an abstract, whatever. But, you know, if there's a typo in the cover letter, we just don't read the article. Like it's kind of dumb. You may miss some good articles, but there are plenty of good articles to publish. So yeah, I, I can kind of see like, you know, it's like a high pass filter or something like that. So, but, yeah, but, but, yeah, but, but, but we my, only my look problem, at every third submission. I mean, right. that's a, like you could do that. Of course. But that's, that's You're going to miss some strange. Stuff. My problem is not so much that it's. Uh, that it could be arbitrary. It's that it, it, it would it works against what I would like to see um, become more normative, which is including students in the authorship process. You know, as either a capstone in the third year, so, or something, right? right. Where, um, so that's that's bad because you know if there are a bunch and you know the other journals that have rejected it so far, you know, and pretty quickly, you know, maybe some of them have done it for the same reason. You know, maybe they've oh, rejected on the merits. Oh, without informing you. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. It's oh. somewhat unusual. Like, usually you just hit reject and you, you never know why. And this one actually said why, which is, I thought, unusual. So yeah. I don't know how many of them also have that uh, have that policy. But if it's a widely shared policy or if there are a bunch of journals, then, like, yeah, it's good. You know, I have to think about, like, can I continue to do this? Mm. Um, yeah, and the answer would... is, of course, I will anyway. But, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but you know, it is what it is. I guess it's the thing to write about is uh, this write about uh, write a piece on this policy and that it makes no sense. You just don't co-author it with a student. Yeah, correct. Well, that would be yeah. Just drop them in a footnote. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for the valuable research assistance. Yes, and I would put you as a co-author, but here's the reason why, and that's the springboard for this piece. Mm. But yeah, so much weirdness. But you, it's weird because a piece co-author with a student can't be published as a student note either. Right. Hmm. So it just can't be done. You could start a new journal, the Journal of uh, of Faculty Student Co-authored Pieces. What's mm. the acronym for that? JFCA. Journal of Faculty. There's an S in there somewhere. Student Journal of Faculty, faculty Joff. Yeah, I, student co-authored. You know what? I think <laughs> Joff skip. I, I like I, it. I'm going out on a limb here, but I think people might be getting bored. <laughs> well, how dare they? Uh, well, this is, yeah, it's, this it's really great. great. I'm going to say it again. People should read the paper. It's very, very good. Glad it's up on SSRN. So you enjoyed it. I haven't I've, even asked you if you liked it yet. Usually I really I did. Usually ask you if you good. liked it. And, and, and sometimes you say, you know, this part I hated. What? So, sometimes you say that. About what? About things I've written. Very early on. Like in, it's an early, if it's an early thing, I might say that. <laughs> right. But <laughs> whereas if it's a later thing, you keep that to yourself. No, uh, <laughs> I, it's a later thing. That's not something I experience. Uh, well, well, thanks for reading our paper, Joe. Yes, we appreciate it. It was my it. pleasure. And and Justin, thank you for um, thank you for joining us. For thank joining you for us having me. Oral argument world headquarters. Um, we will excuse the fact that that uh, I've never asked anybody to call me Professor Turner ever. It's. I mean, I'm going to call you Professor Turner years out from now because I can't call professors by the first name. <sighs> I just I. That's true for a lot of students. It is, it is. And former students. I think it's, I went to grad school before law school and mm. that kind of, you know, I, it's a little bit different. Right. But um, yeah. And, and I've had students before who just call me professor sometimes. Like they don't even use my last name. Right. It feels a little like it's kind of kingly. Or it's something. like a habit. I don't know. Well, <laughs> talk, to, talk to me in 20 years and, and maybe we'll go 
first name basis. Yeah, yeah. That's a quite common thing, actually. Like running into students in the hallway or something, they will say, hello, professor. I get that all the time. I envy them because, you know, I've had so many students and my memory is so bad. And I'm, if I'm not 90, if I'm not 100% certain of the name, I, I get nervous because yeah. like, it makes me <laughs> no, feel like... And I'm totally if, jealous. If, they get to say hello, professor. And, and I if don't I just it. said hello, students, <laughs> it would be terrible. Exactly. And I, like, I was like, darn, I wish I could do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so all I'm, you got to say is, hey, how are you doing? And we, we feel validated. That's well, all you it's, do. I, I'm, I wish I could remember student names at anything like the rate that... Matt Hall does or like right. normal people do I'm, I've become very <laughs> bad with names and I feel terrible about it and so I'm, I find myself wishing I could just mind meld a little bit and and and, and I, I wish I could make you understand how much I know you and value you and know things about you right even and, though I can't produce your name now even on pain of death <laughs> I, mean, I feel really bad right which is weird because most people yeah, you would think like if they don't know if you don't even know their name then then you, you don't know anything about them how can you care about someone if you can't care enough to know their name? It's a reasonable inference, right? And in many contexts, it's it's probably captures true, like right. captures it, truth about the exactly. situation. It, but it's when just you're in a classroom environment, it's just not. <laughs> right. like, that's just not the case. Right. Right. Arg. Right. Right. Um, so I don't know your name anymore because I forgot it already. Yeah, but well, thank you, you for know, joining us. Thank you. Thank I, I think you already called him Jason at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to his brother. Uh, that's true. <laughs> Is he going to listen to the episode? Either? I'm going to tell him to, and okay, everybody cool. else should listen. Hi, too. Jason. <laughs> Wish you were here. <laughs> You'll get to meet him at graduation. He's oh, nice. coming to graduation. Oh, so. wow. Yeah. I like it. Graduation. Graduation's fun, right? They should call it graduation. Uh, yeah. Because we're glad. You noticed that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Slower. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the evening. It's time for it's time for bed, practically. It is. Do you have anything else? Um, you're, 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 I'm you doing you. I, you knew time. I was about to do that. You knew I was about to do that, right? Uh, uh, I'm just, I decided to turn the table. You got anything else? <laughs> No, we talked about the troll culture thing, so I think I'm done. Okay, cool. I think I'm done. All right. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to think of it. I think that's it. I mean, there's so much going on that we could talk about mm. that we could just on the spot. Like if I had just hit record and we had no plan, we some little thing would come up. Yeah. And we would just start talking about that. Sure. And then it'd and be five hard. hours later, and you're like, oh. Right. And you know that's going to happen as soon as you hit stop recording, though. Right? <laughs> oh. He's you heard. Get, I wish I had a separate <laughs> tape recorder, and then I had I would have a whole separate podcast ready to go at a moment's notice of all the. Yeah, it's like the White House taping system. Don't you have a taping system in here that just records everything? No. We'll call it the Butterworth system. Oh, boy. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>